I'm Aliyah Aga, and my index finger is in the abyss. Oh my gosh, look at you. It's so good to see you. This is amazing. Modern technology. The horrible thing, all the stuff about COVID, but the one thing it did do, it really did usher in the age of telepresence. Oh, I can sit here. And I can talk to anybody I need to. I can work with anybody I need to. Control um, screens. I was working remotely for digital domain, you know, and I could just share my screen, give them control. And yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> so, hi. Hi. <laughs> Do you remember that just before we moved down to the Presidio, mm -hmm. I went around, I got Chrissy England's permission to do it, and I brought my camcorder in and just walked all around Kerner. I remember that. There were many highlights of doing that, but one of my favorite highlights was filming you at your desk and finding out the story that I'm about to get you to tell about a certain movie called The Abyss. Ah, yes. <laughs> First of all, you're a perfect guest because you're you. But second of all, you're a perfect guest because you've worked on so many movies that are science fiction classics. The people who are listening to this podcast with us are science fiction fans. The period of your career, which is still going strong, I gotta say, you're not one of the people that I'm talking to who's retiring and relaxed and taking it easy. You're one who's just still right in the middle of everything. You worked on all these shots. I want to go film by film and just find out what you personally contributed to those shots. I also want to teach people about what CGI actually means. You and I know there's 20 or 30 different job functions. I want them to understand not only what you contributed to a shot, but what that particular kind of artist, what is an integration artist. Yeah. So I want to get a little technical. First thing I want to do is just get a little bio information. I grew up in Monterey, California. I went to a Catholic girls school for 10 years that was heavy in the arts. That was really a blessing. After that, I studied film at San Francisco State. I was in the film department in 1975 through 1979. At that point, I transferred to UC Berkeley to finish up my degree in screenwriting. My degree is actually in writing. Yeah, I saw that when I was doing a little uh, research on you, that you started out wanting to write, and you, you got some little chances to do that. I did. I've mostly applied it to writing training manuals. <laughs> I wrote the production tracking system manual in, in the mid-90s and it's helped a lot when I was teaching. I taught at the Academy of Arts, so I was you know, writing my tutorials and such. And I was there in 2019. Well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. We didn't realize what a club we were in. Such cool people, especially working in a facility now filled with young people. And there are a few where I am. Um, there a few of the old ILM people there. It really does feel like a club. It's like, yes, I've known you for 30 years. <laughs> After I graduated from Berkeley, I took uh, photography at the Academy of Art, and this was in the early 80s. I wanted a career in the film industry, but I wasn't really willing to move to Los Angeles. I think I was a little bit intimidated by the 
vastness of, of that area. And I didn't know anybody, didn't have any connections in the industry. So I uh, did a lot of different jobs through the mid to early 80s, uh, everything from retail to house painting. <laughs> I was a caregiver for adult schizophrenics. That was a pretty interesting job. Coincidentally, that was the reference that actually got me hired at ILM. I was reading through the want ads in the Marin IJ. There was an ad for a receptionist for a fast-paced, creative environment. And I just happened to know the address. I knew it was the Kerner address, and that was ILM. You found your job at ILM actually in the Marin Independent Journal. Yes, through the want ads. <laughs> A couple months before that, I was at a party and I met a woman there named Jenny Oz, who is a Foley artist at Skywalker Sound. So I asked her, how did you get in? How did you get in? She goes, well, I started as a receptionist. At that point, I'd never taken a typing class because I did not want to get stuck in a clerical position. After speaking with her, I immediately signed up for a typing class, got a job at a real estate company as a receptionist. And it was then that I saw this ad in the newspaper for ILM, and I knew that was my job. I knew it. So I sent in my resume. I interviewed with Lisa Hoth, who was then an assistant for Scott Ross, who was general manager. One of my job experiences was working with adult schizophrenics. And when she saw that, she said, you'll do really well here. (laughs) (laughs) You have the experience to work with this population. I was hired and there was a commitment to stay a year on the phones, which I did. But that actually turned out to be one of the most interesting times at ILM because I got to meet everybody. I got to meet all their families calling in, all the people who came through the facility at that time. And as you know, they were shooting inserts on the main stage. So principal actors and directors were always coming through the studios. It was extraordinary to be able to have that experience. And after a year, I became a PA. The first show I was on was Back to the Future 3 as VFX production assistant. I was a PA for about a year. That would have been 1990. I started at ILM in 1988. August 8, 1988 was my first day at ILM. 8888? 8888. That's right. After about a year as a PA, ILM had kind of downsized. The projects were kind of scarce at that point. They had downsized to about 90 people. I was sort of put on hold. I not, no, I guess technically laid off. I decided to go to Europe. I took a backpack was in Europe for three months. When I got back, Mark Miller had talked to somebody at Skellington Productions, and they were looking for a coordinator, a stage coordinator, and he recommended me. I interviewed, got the job at Skellington's, and worked on Nightmare Before Christmas for a year. So I was coordinating the motion control stages, you know, making sure puppets were on stage and people were staying on schedule, set dressing, you know, just pretty much coordinating everything that would go into a stop motion shoot from set dressing the puppets to a camera. So were you because, working with Henry Selleck? Yes, I was working with Henry Selleck. It was very cool. And of course, a number of ILM camera guys were there. Dave Hanks and Pete Kazachek was the DP. Zelenetti III was there. So it was like having my big brothers there. It was fabulous. After Nightmare, I went back to ILM as, as a VFX coordinator. The show I was working on was Star Trek Generations. Henry Labonta was on that show. Oh, I remember Henry. Yeah, that was when he first started. He's one of the guests I've already recorded an interview with. Henry is also very good friends with Jim Moorhead. The three of us worked at the same place in Atlanta years and years and years ago. Such a small community. I love it. I love and Greg it. Kilmaster, if you you know Greg, I remember right? Greg. I hung out with Greg in Burning Man in 2003. That was pretty oh. fun. 
Nice. <laughs> Actually, before Star Trek Generations, I worked on Maverick and Wolf. The year that I was away from Ireland working on Nightmare was the year that they did Jurassic Park and Forrest Gump. That was when CGs was emerging as a tool for visual effects. So I kind of missed out on that genesis. When I got back to Ireland, they were working on Casper, which I think was probably the first big CG show. I was, as a coordinator, walking around to people's workstations, you know, taking notes with the director or the or the VFX soup. And I remember thinking, I really want to be behind a monitor. I want to be doing this. That just looks so much more fun than what I'm doing and, and so interesting. <laughs> As you know, back then, you couldn't just call unemployment and get visual effects artists. They just didn't exist out in the world. So ILM was very generous about training people. And they had a workstation, uh, training stations rather, set up in the optical department. After a day of coordinating, I would go to the training station and train in the Roto software because I thought Roto would be a nice in. I talked to John Ellis, who was his head of the department. I asked him, what, what will it take to get me hired as a rotoscope artist? And he said, well, take a Unix class and train and just be ready. When the positions open up, be ready to show your work. And that's what I did. My first job in CG was as a Roto paint artist on Congo. I remember them shooting the lava between C and D buildings. Yes. <laughs> Ed Gorman was the VFX suit. I do have a demo reel. I do not have any Congo on my reel, though. But I did work on some of those lava shots, some of the big crevice shots where, you know, danger of about to fall in, lava flowing, all that. A lot of that, of course, was blue screen. So I wrote a painted and did maps for the characters. So um, Well, now, now would be actually a good time to explain to our listeners, what does it mean to do roto? Well, rotoscoping, I think, is greatly underestimated. Uh, people sometimes call it digital tracing. It's much more than that. You really have to, to know how your work is being used. It's a fine art. There were some people who came from traditional roto. Terry Molitori, in particular, used to roto with pen and ink on animation cells. She moved into digital roto ahead of me because uh, that's what they were doing at ILM, was training people from the traditional departments to work in the digital departments. And were you using Matador at the time? Yes, it was Matador. I would always look at her work because her lines were so clean and so beautiful and her roto mats were perfect. She was my guide to making, you know, really clean shapes around a moving object. And, and of course, the mat has to be animated. Um, make those shapes. You're actually putting down little points and you're creating little curved lines that yes, lines. every single frame. And of course, Matador could interpolate. This is where my education at San Francisco State came in because I had studied animation. So I knew all about keyframing and that kind of thing. Do you start with the, the big movements, it interpolates, and then you go in and do the in-betweens. Animating the splines as the character moves and the camera moves because you also have camera moves on that. Those maps are written out and all of that is sent on to the next group working on the shot who are generally the compositors. When you say they're sent out, they're sent out out as images that are either black or white. That mat is going to be used in the composite to either hold out the foreground or hold out the background and exactly. replace 
the background with a different background or replace the foreground with a different foreground along those edges. So you had issues like with characters' hair. Especially blonde hair and blue sky. I was a rotopaint artist on Twister. That show was supposed to have been shot during tornadoes and hurricanes and all that sort of thing. It was shot with beautiful bright blue skies and we had to insert the gray moody heavy windy skies i remember having to pull mats and rotoscope on blonde flowy hair and blue sky <laughs> oh no that was a challenge and what we ended up doing actually uh for that show was painting on final comps because oftentimes we couldn't get a clean enough extraction and you could see light blue halo around everything we would go in three in the morning before the shot was due or the show was due painting on final comps to paint out the halo. That's a great explanation. I remember talking to uh, Kim Bromley about that very thing. It ended up costing the production a lot of money too because they hadn't planned on that as a part of the pipeline, but it turned out to be a critical part of the pipeline and a very labor-intensive part of the pipeline. For people who are careful watchers of Twister, there are some very fast shots like where they're driving along where they didn't do it, they didn't do the sky replacement. And and if you're really attentive, you can see that th there were shots that we never were able to get to in that sequence. Well, there is one shot in Twister where uh, you do see Helen through the back of a pickup truck. I painted her out accidentally, and I think that might have made it into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> This is the great thing about doing these interviews. You do find out just some really funny things about particular shots. We're already into 90, 91, 92, yeah. but wasn't The Abyss in 89? So it was in 89. Wasn't yes. that episode that I was uh, going to get you to talk about much mm -hmm. earlier than all this? 1989. It was a Friday afternoon. I was on the phone trying to take a message down when Camille Salucci, the show's PA for The Abyss, came running up, grabbed my hand, held it up to a Polaroid of Mary, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio's hand and, and said, great, what are you doing Monday morning? Be here at 7.30 on UJ and don't cut your hand up over the weekend. And I was like, okay. I had no idea what she was asking me to do. She just said, be there at 7.30. Don't cut your hand up. <laughs> so I did. I showed up. John Knoll was the assistant VFX soup at the time on The Abyss. He directed the shoot. So it was UJ Stage. They put some dirt on my fingers to make it look like I'd been you know, working in Greece. And then they put a drop of glycerin on the finger. And when the finger comes out, there's a little bit of drop, that's glycerin. And then they just had me do this kind of thing over and over again until they got the performance they wanted. I got paid $50 for it and went back to the reception desk and worked the rest of my day. Now your finger is a part of film history for people who don't realize, I, I, mean, I can't imagine anybody not realizing at this point, but there is the shot in the abyss where Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio seems to be putting her finger into the forehead mm -hmm. of the water creature. The pseudopod. The pseudopod, right. I've heard it referred to, I believe, by Doug Smythe as the water weenie. They animated the ripples coming out of your finger. It was also one of the first times a 3D scan of a human head had been used to create a CGI surface. A lot of interesting firsts, but that is your index finger. Just, just hold it up to the camera. There you go. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Matador, of course, was the first software that I learned. ILM at the time had some proprietary software 
Full Roto and Comp. I think it was iRoto or iComp. So iComp was definitely one of the softwares that we used. And I remember it kept crashing. For me, it was just interesting because R&D was so active back then and trying to figure out how to do this stuff. This is getting a little bit ahead, but when I moved into Match Move, we were match moving by hand in Soft Image. So we were basically pixel splitting to try to get lineups that that locked. If you've ever tried to match move anything or animate anything to match by hand in a 3D software, you know it's really hard. It's really hard to get it to, to not chatter. Match moving may also be a term that people may not be familiar with. And of course, you've been a master match mover and you still, to some extent, that's a part of what you do even today. What that means is when a director shoots something on a set with a real camera and you're supposed to put CGI into it, well, your CGI has to move exactly with the same exact camera move, even though the CGI wasn't there on set. So what you guys are doing is making a virtual camera inside of Softimage that's going to track with the footage that the director sent you. If a dinosaur has to jump up on a table, well, you need that table there. And that has to track the table in the footage so that you can make shadows, you can make reflections. When you say match moving by hand, that's a really labor intensive process. And I remember sitting in dailies and looking at, you know, just two or three frames that where the match move was sliding and everybody was looking at it and you had to go back and fix those two or three frames. There's so many layers to match move. It's not just cameras and it's not just getting surfaces and scale and dimension and world space correct. Sometimes you have to match animate when there's critical contact between a character that's moving through space with a CG character. And that's called match animation. That's what we call it, match animation. And that has to work. And and there's a whole learning process in the early days of match moving. How you make that work, keeping things true in 3D space. So you can have something in 2D looking like it's pointing right at camera, but the hand's actually pointing backwards or up or something like that, you know. That's a huge part of what Match Move is as well. Accurate camera information, accurate measurements are critical to getting uh, an accurate Match Move. Taking the 3D world, smashing it into a 2D image, and then bringing it out into 3D in a virtual space. That's really what Match Move is. Back then, a Match Move shot was scheduled for two weeks, maybe three weeks. And now you've got one day, maybe two days. And and that, that really comes down to the software development. There's a lot of tools that have been built to do what you used to just have to do by brute force on every Mm -hmm. single shot, Mm -hmm. especially if you didn't have camera information. Cheating was a big part of it. (laughs) That could be the motto of the CGI industry. The way I got into match move was, again, they needed match movers and there were no match movers in the world to be had. So they offered training. I signed up because I wanted to learn how to work in 3D. And I think I had an ulterior motive of becoming an animator someday. My first match move shot was Mission Impossible. The next one was Men in Black. Frank the Pug, the you can kiss my furry little butt shot. (laughs) <laughs> I match moved that shot. We had no information for that. Nothing. I was able to identify in the kiosk a board that looked like it might be a two by four. So I built a two by four cube, placed it out in space till it lined up. And then from that 
simple cube was able to build out the kiosk, get my match move. We had the mask of Frank the Pug, the 3D mask with that camera that I guessed at. I match animated Frank's little face and then somebody put his lips moving. <laughs> Great. What was it like working with John Burton? John was fun and especially in the screening room. You know, I really, I, I enjoyed his commentary. <laughs> John Burton is a first-class pun artist. Yes. <laughs> He's hilarious. I got to work with him on The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. And, yeah. and the biggest laugh I ever had in a movie theater was in Men in Black 2, because I had no idea that John had filmed himself as the alien in the post office. That was our visual effects supervisor. I wasn't expecting it at all. I just blurted out laughing in the theater and everybody turned around and looked at me because that wasn't a funny moment. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing, but anyway. After Men in Black, I see you were on a movie that I was also on, Deep Impact. Do you remember what you did to either destroy or save the earth? <laughs> That was the shot where the big wave was coming and Jim Morris was running towards camera, running away from the wave. That was Jim Morris? He was in that, yeah. That, that's the president of ILM at the time, folks. Honestly, I think that he was still a producer at that time. Oh, wow. But in that shot, I, I match animated a bunch of boats and coastlines and things like that for the mayhem that the waves cause. And then we go to Snake Eyes. I can't think of anything in particular that stood out in Snake Eyes, except Nicolas Cage. But that's... Did, did you meet Nicolas Cage? No, no, I didn't. No, no, no. I was, I was in the studio completely during that time. And that's the number one question. You say you worked on a movie. Oh, did you meet whoever the actor was? No, I sat at my desk. <laughs> I never visited. Even Robin Williams didn't visit during Jumanji. I know. I was, I was so heartbroken that he did. Flubber. Yeah, and Flubber, right. So now we get to Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I think a few of my podcast listeners have heard of that movie. Yeah, I was match moving on that. Ah, oh, Phantom Menace. I do remember match moving a number of the landscapes and such of Tatooine and the thing I remember most about episode one is being an extra really yeah if I were to get the yearbook and open that cover would I see you I do remember this one here this is <laughs> let me see if I can see myself I don't think I was in there I didn't have a great costume they didn't give me the best costume so this is the crew photo for D are you in a shot that you know about just various street scenes of Tatooine when you see the villagers scurrying around in the background. You know, I'm probably two pixels high or something. Those are my pixels. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And we got to do the same thing for the mummy. That plaza scene at the beginning of the movie, there's the camera pan down across the Sphinx thing and then across the plaza. And it was all model shop stuff. But everybody who was on the CGI crew got to put on the costumes and have a green screen shoot. And then we were all composited into that yeah, plaza. I, I missed that one. Although I did match move that shot. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for making our feet lock to the ground. The other thing on episode one, that was my first experience doing pre-vis, pre-visualization, taking storyboards or scripts and creating them in a 3D environment. I did all the cameras for the Gungan battle. I was given still frames, Dennis Murin and Dave Hanks, Terry Costner went out to Novato and 
the hills were still green. It was in the spring and they shot a bunch of stills. So I was given these still photographs. I was given storyboards and then the various assets, Jar Jar and all the various creatures. Based on that, I built out the cameras and blocked in the scenes. That was probably the best experience I had on episode one. It was an opportunity to work one-on-one with Dennis Muir. And there were times when he'd be at my desk operating the mouse and I'd be operating the keyboard just to get the right camera, the right position. That was very special. I'll never forget that. That's a really cool memory. And those were great episode one stories. After that, this is the film where you and I really got to know each other. My all-time favorite project that I ever got to work with, a movie called Galaxy Quest. Oh, yes. We made a parody video. Chris Armstrong wrote and directed it. Sam Stewart did the voiceover. Uh, I watched that just this week. (laughs) Yeah, I remember the line. Here's Aaliyah Aga busy measuring the entire desert in desperation. There was footage of you with tape measure. It looks like you are measuring the desert. I didn't actually work on the shots. I was just the location match mover for Galaxy Quest. So I was on set not only in Goblin Valley, but also in the studios in LA. That was extraordinary. Uh, It was actually my first job as a location match mover. Errors abound. Learning set protocol was, was very interesting. I remember at one point somebody walked up to me and said, one thing you need to know about working on a set is the director is the general, the producer is the lieutenant, and it goes all the way down, and you're the private. That was a real learning experience. Um, Being on set with people like Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman, Dean Pariseau, wonderful man. It was on Galaxy Quest that I got to meet Stan Winston because he brought in the creatures, (laughs) the big rubber creatures. The whole time we were working on it, the crew didn't get that this was going to be such a significant movie. It seemed like a parody and it was like, well, who's going to watch this really? You know, when I first saw it, I was blown away. I just laughed. It was hilarious. It's one of the few movies where the movie itself turned out even funnier than the script. Yes. Just Dean Pariseau's direction and how he worked with the Thermians to develop their performance. I just feel so lucky to have been a part of that. I got to work with Ben Snow and develop the Rock Monster sequence with so many talented technical directors. When you were on set, did you actually interact with Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman and Tim Allen? Well, minimally, because of course I was a private and there was there's strict protocols don't approach the talent don't get in the way although Sigourney Weaver did at one point approach me and it was only because she mistook me for the massage therapist who had <laughs> worked a kink out of Tim Allen's neck somehow <laughs> we looked very similar and so she came up to me and, and I'm five feet tall and she bent way over and said thank you so much for helping Tim and walked away and I was like great she talked to me <laughs> You have a story forever about being mistakenly talked to by Sigourney Weaver. That's funny. After Galaxy Quest, I see a movie that has a lot of really cool visual effects. I don't know that it's as well known, but Mission to Mars. Again, I was the location match mover for Mission to Mars and was on location for three months in Vancouver. We were shooting in Burnaby Studios. The challenge of this show for a location match mover was that there really were no sets. So much of it was outer space and the actors were hung on wires the whole time against black screen. 
how do we put targets up there that can be tracked? I don't know if you remember the plastic targets that ILM had made. They were hexagon X's and that sort of thing. I talked to one of the rigging guys asking him about cherry pickers because I needed to get targets up high. I got some safety pins, hot glued them to the back of the target so I could hook them on because the Velcro wasn't working onto the black curtains. So he asked me to describe what I was trying to do. And I did. And he said, give me an hour. I'll be right back. And he came back with a paint extension pole that he had welded a clamp onto and put a long rope on. He rigged this thing up so that I could clamp my plastic target on, extend it 20 feet up in the air and hook it into the curtain, pull the rope and let it go. That's what I love about the work that we do is that people always have a solution for something that's never been solved before. I still have that pole, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a really great story about what it's like to be on a film set with all these incredibly brilliant people at rigging just to get the shot. Then the shot ends up living forever, way longer than the people that figured out how to rig it. Creative thinking at every level. Now, the unfortunate thing about that was that they used a lot of really long lenses, which means that all the targets I put up were often not even seen in frame. (laughs) Match moving was really difficult because the information was sketchy. Okay. The next one is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first Harry Potter movie. Yeah, that was wonderful. I love the Harry Potter books. I was excited to work on a Harry Potter movie. Who was, who was the location match mover for that one? Might have been Marla. We had great information, which was the best location match mover ever. She was a pretty good bowler. She was on my bowling team for a while. <laughs> And her information was so right on, so detailed, so perfect. The sequence I remember the best was the end sequence where Harry confronts the villain, touches his face, and he turns to dust and falls away. He's worked on the match animation on the character to get the face crumbling and all the ash falling. That was Doug Sutton who did the TD work on that shot. Yeah. Quirrell was his name. Professor Quirrell, the turban. The on turban, the yes. And, and also the shots where he has Voldemort in the back of his head. I match move many of those when you can see it in the mirrors. Those were tricky shots to match. We were tracking a reflection in a mirror which is one layer of distortion in the reality of an already unreal 2D image of a 3D environment. There was the actor, and we were seeing the front of his face, but on the back of his head, you had to make the CGI Voldemort that stuck absolutely and tracked perfectly so that, uh, you know, we believed that it was the same guy turning his head and it was on the back. Yes, exactly. That was it. Then we get to Men in Black 2, which was the one that gave me such a big laugh with John Burton. I was a match move lead on that show, so I had a crew. That was a big jump. I worked in incrementally. There were probably a few smaller shows in between those. IMDb, I don't think, has the full range of movies that I worked on, but there were a few shows in between there. One of my favorite sequences, I think, was when Will Smith was chasing the big lizard creature, climbing the ladder to go up to the Seattle spaceship, The Needle. And Will Smith had to jump on his back and he was bouncing up and down. Of course, he was filmed on a kind of a blue horse. So we had to match animate him. We had, you know, we had to match animate the cameras and get him to ride the creature. There was a lot of that, actually. The scene in which he is battling with Jara, matching the cameras in that sequence was hard because the cameras were moving around so fast because Jara was shooting around him, you know, and all the little Jaras. (laughs) 
for trying to get him. So those were fun. I think one of my favorite shots in that movie was when they come out of the pawn shops at night. They look down. Ned Gorman did the voice. He's about to step on a cockroach and he doesn't because he suddenly realizes it's an alien and he looks up and says, thank you for not stepping on me or something like that. I love that shot. I had no idea that was Ned Gorman's voice. Yeah, that was Ned Gorman. Day after tomorrow, you were also lead match move. I was, yeah. Yeah, that was the wolves. Alan did the CG wolves. And I don't know if you remember them bringing in a pack of wolves and putting them out on stage. You don't remember that. No. And they had the animators. The wolves were on a platform. They'd bring them out one at a time. And it was really just to observe them and see how they move. And I remember going out there just because I had to see the wolves. It was the first time I'd seen one in real life. And making eye contact with a wolf was the most chilling experience. First thing I thought of was, this is not a dog. And the second thing is, this creature is probably more intelligent than I am. I don't think you can find a wolf on the planet who can match move. I really don't. <laughs> They don't have thumbs. That's the hey, problem. You got need thumbs. Being able to interact with wolves and for real life was was the highlight for me. I know this is not really CG stuff, but it's, it's what the experience leads to, really. One of the themes that develops is that one person can work on a lot of different shows over the course of a career. That's why I think this is kind of fun, just going movie yeah. by movie and, oh my God, you worked on that and that. The next one I see is another really great cult classic movie, A Series of Unfortunate Events. What do you uh, remember about working on Lemony Snicket? Well, I remember working on the shots that were shot in this incredible dome. I don't know what it was called. They had this set where they created the Lemony Snicket world underneath a dome so that the sky particular mood and lighting and, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I loved working on the shots because they were so beautiful and so interesting. They were shot so well. Again, the match moves were pretty straightforward. There was nothing unusual, you know, so my pleasure came in reveling in the imagery. Beautiful. I think we did such a beautiful job on the CGI photorealistic kid. Yeah, that was amazing. I don't know if you contacted Terry Molatori. She was a view painter on that, and that baby is in fact in her reel. It's a beautiful shot of the baby, but then at the very and one pixel pops off and you can see that it's CG and it's just perfect. You're sitting there thinking this is a real baby and then all of a sudden pop and it's like, wow. And now we got Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, match move lead again. Well, they had a lot of Quidditch scenes, a lot of flying dragons. In terms of match move, what was interesting is that we had to have uh, particular camera rigs built. We would match move the blue screen element of the kid on some kind of blue horse or whatever. We would extract the kid from that. That whole match move would be put on a rig with a secondary camera that would then film that element flying through space. So we called it two and a half D. We could fly the character around shooting it from a secondary camera. And it was those cameras that were used to put the kids on brooms or put the kids on dragons. Wow. Yeah. That's complicated. It was very complicated. And I have to do a similar thing now. I'm just wishing I had that camera rig. So we're, we're building a rig now to, to reproduce that. So. <laughs> okay. Chronicles of Narnia. Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe? 
Yeah, yeah, did a lot of that, match animating people wearing blue pants so that they could become centaurs. I worked on a few of those shots. Now I see Aragon. Did you get to work with Stefan as your director? No, I was not on location for that one. That would think was Marla as well, but I was the lead. I was the match move lead on that. It says we need layout artists. So what's the difference between match move and layout? And here it comes the cool thing about this particular job. We'll call it integration for lack of a better word. Match move is simply a component of integration. Layout's a second component. Basically what I described with the Quidditch scenes and putting the characters on a secondary camera and flying them around so it looks like blue screen elements are riding brooms or dragons. That's layout. That's basically the next step. You match move your camera, you match move your characters, then you lay out the scene so that everybody down the pipeline from animators to final TDs can use that secondary camera to build shots. Previs has sometimes been called layout, but basically taking the elements and putting them together in a 3D pre-comp in a sense. So that might mean a character is shot on a blue screen set and has to jump from something that was shot on one layer of film and then he has to jump to something else that was shot at a different time and sometimes the scales are all different and you have to create a 3d world in which the camera moves from one of those things looking at it and then moves to the other thing and you're compositing not just layers of background but 3d movements of different parts of the background together yes exactly it's fun it's a big puzzle (laughs) it seems like a three-dimensional puzzle for each shot. Now, do they ever consult you on how they should shoot some of the elements? would be the job of the location match mover and the VFX suit. It's usually the VFX suit making those calls. I don't want to miss Iron Man. Iron now Man, it says yeah. digital artist. So is yes. that a different thing that you were doing? At some point, the credit at ILM shifted from specific departments to grouping everybody under digital artists. I basically match move, match animation, match animating Tony Stark so that his suit could stick to him. Again, the blue screen, two and a half D shots of him flying through space. A lot of him was CG. Was there a CG actor's face or was that all actual performance from the actor? I can't say for sure, but I do believe it was performance from the actor. We had a body scan of him so that we could match animate and apply the suit. The flying Iron Man, of course, was all CG. The scenes where he's in his helmet talking, that's live action. His face is live action. It's composite. Now we've got Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Did you get to be on set for that? No, I was in the studio for that one. I did a lot of the shots in the warehouse chase where Harrison Ford is jumping from box stack to box stack or swinging with his whip, trying to get away from the bad guys. Big set extension show. Yeah. What does it mean to do set extension? Ah, set extensions. Oftentimes they will shoot a blue screen element with a portion of the set. They did this a lot on episode one. A lot of what we saw were set extensions. It's the match mover's job again to lock the camera to that plate with the set and the character. And then in digmat or digital matte painting, they will go in and they will either paint or have a 3D environment that's rendered to match the foreground. 
and that will be locked into that plate. So it looks like, for example, in the warehouses, Harrison Ford might be on one box in foreground, and then it looks like he's in a giant warehouse going all the way back. Well, in fact, there was just a blue screen behind him, and the warehouse behind him is all CG. So that's what a set extension would be. If the camera moves and sees a, a big background, the stuff that they're seeing is just a CGI rendering of what that environment would look like. And in the foreground, they got the character and the one or two things he has to jump up and interact with. Everything else is the magic. Yes, exactly. You got to work on a bunch of Harry Potter movies. Here's the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, so I worked on some of those shots and the Petronia shots and, and the Dementors coming in and grabbing Harry. This is one that's on my reel is when the Weasley twins are fighting and then they turn into old men. I had to match animate them, get the camera match animate them, wiggling around and fighting, and then um, get a lock on the head and their faces so that when they sit up, all the hair is sprouting around and the hair locks to them. I'm not sure if that's the right Harry Potter movie or not. <laughs> if I can back up a little bit to the previous Harry Potter film we talked about with the dragons. And this was kind of interesting technically because it hadn't been done before. But there are scenes where the kids are choosing the dragons that they're going to be fighting. The dragons are in their hands. They're pulling them out of the bag. And there's a scene where Harry is wearing a glove and he's holding a dragon in his hand. His hand is moving. So the question was, how do you match animate a surface that's animating? It's not a rigid object moving through space. It's a very organic shape. So Zoran came up with, it was something he had been experimenting with, but hadn't been used in production yet, where we could animate the vertices of the geometry. So I used that not only for the gloves, but there's a scene in that movie where they go into a tent. And once they go into a tent, they go into a magical world and they're pulling back the curtain of the tent. They wanted to put a very special fabric on that curtain. So that I used that same technique where I animated the vertices back to, to create the folds of the curtain going back. And then they could project their preferred fabric on that curtain moving. That was pretty neat. I hope my listeners understand that this is something that is invisible. Yes. Now, we yeah. don't see your work because the shot just works. You really are kind of that Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, pulling the levers. And you know. <laughs> my family always used to ask, you know, what is it that you do on these movies? Because they didn't actually point and say, you know, that thing is what I made. And all I, I could do. tell them was, if you can see my work, then I didn't do it right because my work by nature has to be invisible. The one movie that I really, really wish I could have worked on was Rango. It was more than just doing your work. It was actually also making the movie. It was making the movie. I had a unique role on Rango in that I was set dressing. I wasn't actually doing the layout cameras. They needed somebody to set dress the town of dirt, placing barrels, placing objects throughout that made it look like rodents lived in this town. The general store was really fun. So if you look at the general store and every can, every hat, every basket was placed by hand by me in the set. And the fun part of that was that I had a lot of freedom. Here's an empty building, dress it. And I got to work directly with the director and the art director, Crash McCreary, in getting the look that he wanted. 
that was really special working with Gordon Binsky and Crash McCreary. I had a very similar thing on Harry Potter 2. Draco and Harry are flying around the trench outside the Quidditch Stadium. I did the same thing. I put all the barrels, all the shovels, all the rakes, all the ropes, ladders, because we had to build the entire perimeter of the trench. Were there any CGI challenges to that? Did they have to develop new software? Because the sets were getting so heavy with all the assets, Carlos Lunas created a particle system. For example, in the library, you know, there are books, all the books were hand placed. They were set pieces, but they were particles. So that made them very light. The grass that was placed and different things. That was new. I was bringing in instances of set pieces, instances of props, rather than the actual props. And they looked perfect. Were you actually doing the look dev turntables? No, no, I wasn't doing that. No, I was filling the room with stuff and then passing it on. What was it like at the shop itself? Because ILM had always been kind of, we do this work for this movie or we do this work for that movie, but there must have been just some amazing feeling in the air that everybody was making the movie itself. Yeah, it was. It was very exciting. The notion that we were making an animated feature rather than participating in somebody else's feature. I remember Gore Verbinski once saying that what surprised him about making this movie was that absolutely everything had to be created for the film. I think initially people think, well, you know, making an animated movie, that's a lot easier than live action. You don't have to go out on set. You don't have to do this. You're just right there in the studio. And yet, like you said, they don't realize is that every blade of grass, every board, everything needs to be placed by hand. Again, with the particle technique, especially in the desert. I didn't dress the desert. They came up where they could just make instances of grass clumps that would go, you know, would be spread out. Was Tony Platt? did you work with Tony I did, Platt? I did with Tony Platt on that, yep. I'll just tell you a quick Tony Platt story. After he got his degree in CGI somewhere in Florida, he came to Atlanta and got an internship at Crawford, which is where I was, where Henry was, Barbara Nellis was there, Greg Kilmaster was there. And so Tony actually started his career as my intern. Oh, see, always be nice to the intern. <laughs> always be nice to the intern. Then he went on to be George Lucas's right-hand guy on Strange Magic. Yeah, I worked with him on Strange Magic as well. I think the credit is 3D story artist. Essentially, previs, as I recall, the show did not have storyboards. They didn't want to go through the storyboard process. Instead, we would get pages of scripts. Again, we had all the assets and the particle technology had already been developed. We'd bring them all into Maya. There was a software written by Max Chen called ZViz and then GWiz. GWiz was the previous software that you could, you know, pull in your assets, pull in your camera, push things around. It was very fast. We actually did end up working in Maya mostly. We took the scripts and built out the scenes in 3D. So it was a little bit like directing your own shot. Where am I going to place the characters? They're going to be dancing, ballroom sequences. You know, who's going to be dancing past them? It was fun creatively in that the 3D layout artists were able to give a lot of their own input into the look, the camera moves. Everything was originated from us. All we had was a script page. And then that, of course, was presented to the director and thrown out usually, and we had to do it again. But <laughs> <laughs> The director being George. Yes. <laughs> There's three movies that all are similar in time period and look, and that's 
Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Battleship, and Pacific Rim. All three of those were really significantly into what could be done with CGI. I mean, I think at that point we were using Xeno. We haven't talked about Xeno yet. Xeno is the most extraordinary tracking software on the planet. I was a beta tester for Xeno when Steve Sullivan and Max Chen were writing this. It kind of emerged from Vince Toscano's software called Crimson Tracker. That was like the first tracking software that we used at ILM back in the 90s. At some point, ILM threw a lot of big brains at matching tracking. The developers sitting in our room working with us, working on shots. So they developed this software called Xeno that could absolutely do everything. It was kind of built with a very familiar interface. That's what we were using on those shots. So at that point, Xeno had developed to the extent that you could do stereo tracking in it. Uh, you could pull extractions. There was even its own sequencer attached to it. If we were working on a layout project, you could sequence your shots and see how they've tied together. That software is not talked about enough. And I really do wish it was on the market because since I've left ILM, I have longed to use Xeno in the work that I've done. There's nothing like it. It goes from 2013 of Pacific Rim to 2019, the captain at Whiskey Tree. I would assume that in the interim, you were working on projects that may not have been feature films. Exactly. After ILM, I worked for a startup called Creature Arts and Mechanics. And it was a number of ILM people who started it. Scott Smith, Tim Naylor, they started this company. It was located in C buildings, which was absolutely cool. I was sitting in large graphics, wow. upstairs C building kitchen, which had once been the editing room for uh, Jedi. It was basically our lunchroom. <laughs> and the way I got into that was Terry Molitori called me one day and said, hey, you know, there's this like little startup happening in C building. They don't have any projects. Nobody's getting paid, but people just show up and you can use their equipment. They have workstations. I'd come on, did you come for lunch and just see everybody? After that, I just started showing up every day with the intention of training. We called ourselves the CG club. Everybody just showed up. Nobody was getting paid. We had lots of fun. The intention of the company was digital humans. In 2014, we were approached to do a virtual Michael Jackson, 3D Michael Jackson for the 2014 Billboard Awards. There was a song that he had recorded that had not been released called Slave to the Rhythm. We shot a Michael Jackson impersonator doing all the action and replaced the heads. There was extensive asset development on Michael Jackson's head. Since we didn't have 3D scan of him, we wanted him from a certain period of his life. We had a facial modeler named Shraga Weiss working with us. He came up with the idea to take still images of Michael Jackson. We did this for Elvis as well. We developed a really beautiful Elvis asset. Take still images, I would match cameras. And again, you know, you have to make up the cameras, but I would match the camera to the asset. So we would find images that would give us you know, sort of a rotation of the face in different angles of his face and stick the 3D geometry on through matched cameras and put them in a loop. And he would go through using these cameras and the 3D image or the 3D geometry lined up to the face and sculpt and model the asset and came up with a beautiful Michael Jackson asset. So that was presented at the Billboard Awards. And then after that, that company was bought by a, a company in Florida. We developed a beautiful Elvis asset. Some of the group got together and 
and wrote a script uh, based on Elvis's life. We were hoping to be able to produce that as, as startups will. It just sort of folded after about two and a half years. That was so much fun. The CG Club was amazing. And after that, I worked for uh, Whiskey Tree. The Captain was a Chinese production based on a true story of a plane that took off in China. Somehow the front windshield was blown out. They were flying through the mountains and they had to turn the plane around, flying through a tremendous storm with a hole in the windshield in the cockpit. And he ended up landing it safely and everybody lived. The work that we did was the whole flight of the airplane and its experience going through the big clouds and the storm. It was a pretty good film. I don't know that it was released in the United States though. I know you went down to DD, worked with my buddy Jim. Can you talk about what you did there? I can talk about some of it. The shows that I worked on are on the verge of being released or have been released. When COVID hit in 2019, I was teaching Match Move at the Academy of Art. We went to remote learning in March, finished out the semester, and I expected that I would go back in the fall, but then the enrollment dropped due to COVID. So I started looking around, saw an ad for facial tracker for DD, remote work. So I did work remotely. The first show I worked on was in Supermassive Games. It's just been released, The Quarry. That was using masquerade technology to track the faces. And after having worked on the asset development for Michael Jackson and Elvis, working on this show was just huge leaps and bounds in terms of technology and how we were getting the results. It was extraordinary, you know, that you can just get wrinkles and subtle twitches in the skin based on the tracking markers, based on what the software would do. And I can't tell you everything about it, but the results were beautiful. And after that, I worked on She-Hulk. I did facial tracking on She-Hulk as well, and that should be coming out soon. I'm excited for that. So we've made it through your work, and this represents a huge chunk of time from the late 1980s up until right now, 2022. We're talking in uh, June of 2022. Do you ever look back on your place? You're still in it. So maybe you don't yet have this global perspective. I like to now think back on it as a period of time of my life. What do you think back on overall on your career and what you've seen and how it's gone and who you are in it? Wow. Well, I think I was incredibly fortunate to be around for what I consider the golden age of visual effects. I didn't realize the gift that it was at the time. But when I do look back, I realize I learned from the people who were inventing the craft as they were inventing it. I just don't know of any other opportunity that could have been better. Learning from these brilliant, brilliant minds coming up with solutions to impossible problems that had never been solved before. So that's the thing that comes out for me most, you know, when I look back was sitting in a room, looking around at the people in the room, just imagining the IQ quotient going through the ceiling. You know, and and that was a privilege to work with such extraordinary people. Beyond that, you know, I think being a female in the industry. That was my next question. So you you just led right into it? Being one of the, I I imagine one of the few first women in CGI, I would guess, although I have no evidence of this, that I was probably the first Arab American woman to work in CGI. We were trailblazing in our own way, keeping up technologically. I'm an artist. I don't have a technological background per se. I identify more as an artist. Learning that technology as it was being developed was a huge challenge, immensely exciting. And then, of course, a little bit insecure. (laughs) I was like, "Eh, they're going to find me out. (laughs) I realize now that everybody was kind of 
going through that as well because everybody was learning. That hasn't changed. I'm working on another stop motion film. And Jim said, as I was leaving DD, he goes, well, this is a great bookend to your career. I'm working on a puppet show. It's being integrated with CG. This is at Leica Studios. Yeah, I'm camera match move lead at Leica Studios. It really does feel like I've come full circle in my career working at Leica. And we are doing things that we haven't done before. We're developing technology and it's constant learning. I think that's what I love about my career more than anything. It's nonstop learning. I feel really privileged. I feel really blessed that I've been able to do this work and work with people like you. Many of our friends, I have no words. You have plenty of words and they were just brilliant. Thank you so much, Aliyah Aga, for being on the podcast, uh, CGI Fridays for the Companion. You were a wonderful, wonderful guest. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure.